Maybe seated. I invite you to turn with me uh, now in God's Word to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, and we uh, our scripture reading today is verses 4 through 6. I'll go ahead and just read the begin the reading at verse 1, again, to pick up on the context of the things that we spoke of last week, and then we'll pick up verses 4 through 6. Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now for today's text. Then I saw thrones. Seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This ends this reading, God's word. Let's look again to the Lord in prayer. Lord, our God in heaven, we do bless you and we give you thanks. We praise you for your word, which is all sufficient, Lord, to show us Jesus Christ. It is sufficient for a life of godliness. It is sufficient to prepare us, Lord, for the glorious future that awaits all those who belong to Jesus Christ. And we pray, O gracious God, today that you would feed us out of your holy word. Be near to us now. Speak, O Lord, for we indeed indeed listen, we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. I want you to imagine uh, for a few moments what it would have been like to be a Christian in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, in the year uh, AD 90, among uh, some of the first recipients of John's letter that is called uh, Revelation. This letter would have come to you. What would have your existence been like? Well, at that point, 
Uh, it was about 60 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, the church of Jesus Christ had spread, but it was still, uh, if you were a Christian, you were among the vast minority of people. You would have faced uh, increasingly severe persecution, a persecution that would have been local on the one hand, as a member of your community, you would have been expected to offer uh, the sacrifices to idols and to participate in the temple worship that the others in your community would have participated in. But not only was there a local persecution, there was also a kind of empire-wide persecution that had begun against Christians, Christians who refused to call Caesar Lord and instead said that Jesus was Lord. And so to be a Christian was to be in a vast minority. It was to live your life often ostracized and under threat in the community in which you lived. And what is more than that, all the early leaders of Christianity had died. Many of them martyred for the faith. Just go through the list. James, and Peter, and Paul, and in fact, all the apostles had been killed for their faith. All except John, that is. But John was on exile, is in exile on that island of uh, Patmos. And so, it was not an easy existence. <laughs> And I can imagine that if you were a Christian in that setting, that you would have had a couple of questions. On the one hand, you would have wondered at times, you know, I wonder if this whole Christian movement is doomed. Uh, we believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, but the secular powers just seem to be too great. What am I to do? Well, in answer to that first question came the passage that we looked at last week in verses 1 through 3, and what an encouragement it would have been. Are, is Christianity doomed? No, we were told. Satan is bound for these thousand years. He does not rule. He does not reign. The beast and the false prophet that do his bidding are to be destroyed. Satan is bound. But then I imagine that you would have had a second question as well. If you faced all of the suffering that you were experiencing, you would have asked the question at times, you know, is Christianity really worth it? I've given up so much. In fact, I've given up everything in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Has this been a good price to pay? Well, it's an answer to that question, really, that these verses today, in verses 4 through 6, would have been a real encouragement. Because here we read that though you suffer much, that the saints reign for a thousand years. So the saints' reign is the topic today. Now, the passage that we have before us, like the passage last week, is one of the more difficult passages in the book of Revelation. And so, 
what I want to do is we open up this word, which is a word of extraordinary encouragement to the church. I want to open it up by a series of questions that will hopefully unpack the meaning of these verses, and then we're going to apply it uh, at the end. And so a series of questions, let me just briefly go through what those questions are. Uh, The first of those is, when are the 1,000 years? Uh, Secondly, where are the thrones? Uh, Thirdly, uh, who is seated on the thrones? Then fourthly, what is the first resurrection? And then lastly, how do the saints reign? Okay, those questions. When are the thousand years? Where are the thrones? Who is seated on those thrones? What is the first resurrection? And how do the saints reign? And by means of those five questions, we'll open up these three verses together. And then at the end, after we have unpacked the meaning of these verses, we will apply it uh, and see the tremendous encouragement that it is uh, to the church today. Well, the first of these five questions is the question, uh, when are these thousand years? Well, this is a question that we looked at last week because this little phrase, the thousand years or the millennium, is a phrase that is found nowhere in all of Scripture except here in Revelation chapter 20. And here it is found in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, 5, 6, and then in verse 7. And last week we said that there are a variety of interpretations of what this millennium uh, refers to. Uh, Some who hold to a pre-millennial view believe that Jesus Christ returns first, and then there is a millennial or a thousand-year period in which Christ rules along with resurrected saints in Jerusalem. Well, a second view is that of post-millennialism that believes that Christ returns after a 1,000-year millennium, hence post-millennialism, And that view says that there will be a millennium or a golden age of the church in which Christ's reign will be especially evident just prior to his return. But then there is a third view, a view called amillennialism, as I said last week, perhaps better titled inaugurated millennialism, that says that the millennial period, that the thousand years is a symbolic number to refer to the entire church age between the first coming of Jesus Christ and his second coming. And we saw a number of reasons last week that I believe that that is the best interpretation of this millennial period. And so when it talks about in verses 4 through 6, this millennium, this 1,000-year period, I believe that the best interpretation, again, is that this refers to a time between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. Uh, If you want the reasons for that, and you weren't here last week, go and listen to last week's uh, sermon. We're not going to review all of that together. But simply to say that what is being referred to in verses 4 through 6 is the same time period as what was referred to in verses 1 through 3. 
And so during the same time that Satan is bound, the saints also reign. That's what we are told here. So that is when this 1,000-year period takes place. It is the church age. It is the age in which we now live. And let me just say that we believe that this is what Revelation has been teaching throughout. When does Jesus Christ reign? He reigns now. Christ is on His throne now. And that, dear friends, the Christian's hope is a future hope, absolutely, but it is also a present hope in the living God and the living Savior who rules uh, from heaven. And so this now leads to the second question that we'll ask, and that is, where are the thrones? Okay, Because he does speak here of thrones. And he says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was uh, committed. So from where do these people reign? Where are these uh, thrones? Uh, well, in the book of Revelation, the word throne is mentioned some 47 times. And almost always, the location of the throne is in heaven. Uh, the only exceptions are three times when the throne of Satan or of the beast is mentioned, and that is on earth. And then in two times in Revelation 22, verses 1 and 3, it speaks there of the throne which God occupies, which now is in this new heavens and new earth. But everywhere else in the book of Revelation where the throne is mentioned or thrones are mentioned, it is in heaven. And so Revelation 4.2, to give one example. Uh, there we are told that John at once was in the Spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Or Revelation chapter 11 and verses 15 and 16, where we are told with the blowing of the seventh angel, there were loud voices in heaven. And they announced, saying, that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones, there's the language again, before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. Those thrones, of course, are thrones that are in heaven. And so, the, the indication that we have time and again throughout the book of Revelation, that in the midst of this world that appears chaotic, a world of suffering and of misery and death, a world where Satan is warring against Christ, and where secular governments threaten and persecute the church, and where false ideologies, which are based upon lies and deceit, deceive the hearts and minds of multitudes. In a world where people have given themselves over to greed and the love of money and of things, and where evil is called good and good evil, in a world where God seems to be forgotten, dear friends, there is still a throne that is in heaven where Christ rules and reigns. And so Christians are called to lift your eyes 
and to see Jesus Christ ruling over all things from heaven. That is the message of of Revelation. And so, as we come now to Revelation 20, beginning here in verse 4, it is saying, Behold, I see thrones. There are thrones, and they are in heaven. But not only is Christ on that throne in heaven, but His people are there with Him. The saints are reigning. They are with Christ in glory. So where are these thrones? Well, they are thrones which are in heaven. So there's a thousand years, the age in which we now live, in which there are thrones that are in heaven. But now the next question comes, is who is seated on these thrones? Who is seated on these thrones? Well, here we see verse 4. Well, seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. That's who. Well, here's a picture, dear friends, uh, of the church. And it's a picture primarily of Christian martyrs, isn't it? We're told there of the souls of some who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And let me just pause for a moment to say that this text makes it clear that there have been Christians throughout the history of the world who, like John the Baptist, have literally lost their heads for the sake of Jesus Christ. Who are willing to have their heads severed from their body rather than to fail to confess the name of Jesus. Those who are beheaded. But surely this passage is not only referring to those who are beheaded, but is using that as a way of describing all who have given their lives for Jesus Christ. Uh, There are Christians as well throughout the ages who have been burned at the stake watching their bodies engulfed in flames. There are Christians who have been willing to face the bullets of a firing squad for the sake of Jesus Christ. Or who have died a long, slow, languishing death, starving in prison, rather than uh, to fail to confess Jesus. There have been others that were beaten to death. There are others who have been given over uh, to wild animals for sport rather than to go back on their confession of Jesus Christ. There have been Christian martyrs. And indeed, the Christian life is often a life of suffering. And there are many throughout church history who have given their lives for the sake of Jesus. And it is these, we are told, who are now reigning with Christ in heaven. But it is not only the martyrs. Because if you look at that passage, it says that I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus 
and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Now this kind of language has occurred earlier in uh, the book of Revelation, and it's referring to those who were not, who, who, who have not uh, worshipped this world and the powers of the world, who have not been conformed to the image of this world, who have not received the marks of this world on their foreheads or their hands. It's a language of identity and of possession. And it's saying as Christians, we have been separated unto God. We have the mark of God on our foreheads. We have been sealed by Him and are separate from this world and its worship and its ideologies, its greed and materialism its devotion to the ultimate power of the state, its devotion uh, to, uh, uh, to immorality in all of its forms. As Christians, we have been separated from these things. We are not worshiping the things that the rest of the world is worshiping. And it is this, this sanctified, separated church of Jesus Christ that we are told now also is going uh, to reign. And so it's a picture, dear friends, of those who truly belong to Jesus. Those who have resisted the world, who have often lived contrary to the world in this life. Many of whom have suffered a martyr's death for their devotion to Jesus Christ. And it is these who are found seated on these thrones, reigning with Christ. Well, the next question, number four now, is the question then, well, what is the first resurrection? That is, when do these then become raised, uh, or uh, when, when do these saints begin to reign with Christ? Because you'll notice there, it does say that uh, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then in verse 5, it's sort of a parenthetical comment. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And then it says, this, referring to those who came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, this is the first uh, resurrection. What is this talking about here? What? What resurrection is this? Well, premillennialists will argue that this resurrection must refer to a bodily uh, resurrection. Uh, That the bodies of believers, they would say, are raised prior to the 1,000-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ uh, from Jerusalem. And so there's a resurrection first of believers, then the millennial period, And then, at that point, the bodies of unbelievers are raised unto final judgment at the end of that 1,000-year reign. Uh, And uh, and so that would be the argument of of premillennialists. And uh, based on this passage alone, if if this were isolated, I think, from the rest of Scripture, that would uh, perhaps be one understanding of that, uh, uh, of that passage. And they would argue, they, they argue that this expression of come to life, when it says that 
they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, uh, must refer to a bodily resurrection because then in verse 5 when it speaks of the rest of the dead, referring to unbelievers, that they did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, that's referring to their resurrection unto judgment. So in both cases it must be talking, they would say, of a physical resurrection. Believers before the millennial reign of Christ and unbelievers after. However, uh, the rest of Scripture indicates that that final resurrection for believers and unbelievers is one that occurs at the same time and occurs at the second coming of our Lord. And so John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, for example, uh, make this point, where there it says, uh, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so, what is being described here in uh, Revelation chapter 20 is a spiritual uh, resurrection. When it talks about this first resurrection, it's referring to a spiritual resurrection. A second resurrection, which is not spoken of in those terms here, is the bodily resurrection at the return of, uh, of Jesus Christ. And so if this is a spiritual resurrection that it's talking about, well, what, how can we understand this? Well, let me just say that there are two ways in which we might understand this spiritual resurrection of believers to these thrones in heaven where they reign with Jesus Christ. And I think each of these views have merit. Each of them would be held by different Reformed interpreters. And I'll give them, the choice I'm going to make is the second choice, but I'll give you the first one and then the second one, okay? Well, first... Some understand this first resurrection as referring to the saints' regeneration or their new birth. And the point is, is that when a person becomes a Christian, that spiritual transformation, the new birth, is so significant that it can be described as being raised with Christ and seated with Christ in heaven. And that's the very language, is it not, of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. If then that you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So at the moment of your conversion, you are raised with Christ, Colossians 3, 1 says. Or Ephesians 2 and verses 4 through 7. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, there speaks of how, uh, well, beginning at verse 5, while we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What's that referring to? It's referring to our conversion the moment of our regeneration. 
So profound is our new union with Jesus Christ that it says we have even now been seated with him in the heavenly places. That even now we are kings and priests on earth. That suffering Christians at the very moment that they are suffering are also reigning, seated in a position of spiritual authority. They have overcome the world already. And friends, that is a biblical teaching. That absolutely is a a biblical perspective and teaching. Nonetheless, (laughs) I think that the focus in Revelation 20, while that perspective is true, that the focus in Revelation 20 is on something else. And this is a second option that is held by Reformed interpreters. That this resurrection, this first resurrection that is being talked about here, refers to the souls of believers going to be with Jesus Christ when they die. What might be called the intermediate state. Or, in the words of the shorter catechism that we confessed together earlier, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at their death And the answer is that the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in the graves till the resurrection. So what is this first resurrection? It is that moment when at the dissolution of soul and body that our souls ascend immediately into the presence of our Lord whom we love. And there we reign with Jesus Christ. Now, why do I think that this is what is being referred to here in Revelation chapter 20? Well, I have three reasons why. Okay? And the first of those three reasons here is the mention of souls. That's specifically the language that is used. Verse 4, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Their heads were taken off, but their souls are living. So who is reigning? Well, it is specifically souls. And it is a very fitting way to describe those whose bodies are in the graves. Well, a second reason I hold this view is that this very thing is the promise that was held out earlier to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Do you remember those chapters contain the letters to the seven different churches? And each of those seven letters end with a promise of future glory. Let me just read a couple of them. Revelation 2, verses 26 and 27. The church in Thyatira. There we are told that the one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. It sounds like Revelation 20, doesn't it? You remain faithful, you conquer, And I will give you this authority to reign with me. Or even more telling, Revelation 3 and verse 21. 
This is part of the letter to the church in Laodicea. There we're told, Revelation 3.21, that the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And so the promise is to the one who conquers, who remains faithful till that time of death, serving the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Lord will grant such a want to go and to sit with him on his throne. So that's the second reason. It is those promises in Revelation 2 and 3. But the third reason I hold to this view of what this resurrection means is the the correspondence. I was going to say the parallel, and I think either word would work. The parallel or the correspondence that this first and second resurrection has to the first and the second death that are described here. Let me explain. Uh, Verse 6 speaks of a second death. It says that those who partake, those who share in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power. Well, you say, what is that? What is the first and the, what is the second death? What is the first and the second death? Well, the first death refers to our physical death, the separation of soul and body. The second death refers to the final judgment at the return of Jesus Christ. So the promise here is that if you partake in this first resurrection, you shall not partake in that second death. You shall not be finally condemned at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the first and the second resurrections, in the view that I stated, correspond then to the first and the second death. If the first death is our physical death, the separation of soul and body, the first resurrection is that soul going to be with the Lord in heaven. Then, the second death is our final condemnation on that final day of judgment. What is the second resurrection? but the resurrection of our bodies from the grave to new life in which we will live with the Lord, body and soul, in his presence for all eternity. And so on that view, on this view, the first and second resurrections correspond to the first and to the second deaths. Okay? And so for those reasons, I do think that that first resurrection, okay, is indeed... Uh, referring to uh, the souls of believers at their death going into the presence of Jesus Christ where he is ruling and reigning on his throne. Well, now this leads us to the fifth question before our application, which is the question of then how do the saints reign? How do the saints reign? That is, what does this mean for the saints to reign with Jesus in glory. Well, a number of things we're told here. Uh, The first thing that we're told is that they have the authority to judge. That's verse 4. They are those to whom the authority to judge is uh, committed. What does this exactly look like? (laughs) To judge with Jesus Christ in glory. 
And the answer is, I don't fully know. But I do know that it means that we will joyfully agree with and acquiesce in the judgments of God. And that we, in some sense, are going to participate in them from that position of authority. It, but, but it's a picture, dear friends, of us who are so often lowly thought of in this world, being lifted to the highest place to reign with Him in glory. We have the authority to judge. But the second thing that we are told about this is that, that, is, is that these saints are blessed and holy. You see that in verse 6? Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. You are supremely happy if you reign with Christ in heaven. You know, I wonder what are the things that make you happy? People are, some people will say, I'm the happiest when I'm out in my garden. Or I'm the happiest when I'm alone with a book. Or I'm the happiest when I'm with my friends. Each of those things are beautiful, wonderful gifts that the Lord gives us. But dear friends, there is no happiness like the happiness of heaven. And that's what it's saying, blessed. Supremely blessed, dear friends. And holy. So much of the happiness is going to be because we are going to be rid of all sin. Fully and finally separated unto communion with God. Happy and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection, whose soul is with the Lord in glory. But the third thing about how the saints reign is that they are then freed from condemnation. That's what it says in verse 6, over such the second death has no power, that there will come a coming judgment day and a time of resurrection and a time in which all are going to appear before the throne of God to be judged. We're going to read about that in the end of Revelation chapter 20. But the promise is, is that if you die in the Lord, then you are secure, not only for that intermediate state, but for that final judgment. And your body will be raised in the glorious likeness of Jesus Christ. You will live with Him forever and ever. And so the saints in heaven do not fear that coming judgment day. But they know that they they belong to this one whom they now rule and reign with uh, in glory. And then the fourth thing about this reign is that these saints worship and serve God. We're told that they will be priests of God and of Christ. The language of priesthood refers to worship and service of God. And the the idea is is that we shall be supremely happy in His service in heaven uh, forever and ever. Well, friends, that is the image of the saints' reign in glory. But So let's finally just make application of this before uh, we are done. A couple of different points of application that I want to make. Because this is a message that is extraordinarily encouraging for the church. And the first application is this. It is that you can have great comfort about the present condition of Christians who died in the Lord. Where are your departed loved ones who died 
in the Lord. Where are our friends who we used to worship alongside of in this congregation who have died in the Lord? And the answer is that they are reigning with Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, your last breath on earth doesn't end your life. But it becomes the passageway for the new, victorious, and ever-blessed life with Jesus Christ in heaven. D.L. Moody once famously said in a sermon, he said, One of these fine mornings, you're going to read in your newspaper that old D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe it? On that day, I shall be more alive than I have ever been. Paul put it this way. He said that I desire to depart and to be with Christ. Why? Because it's very much far better. To be absent with the body, or to be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, is to be present with the Lord. Our light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Friends, there is glory that awaits all those immediately who die in the Lord. They go to be with Jesus Christ in heaven. What a comfort that ought to be for our dear Christian loved ones. But the second point of application I want to make is this. It is that you must remember that laying down your life for Christ's sake is always worth it. That laying down your life for Jesus' sake is always worth it. This passage is describing people who laid down their lives for Christ's sake. People who were beheaded. People who suffered a martyr's death. People who were willing to be separate from the world and receive its mockery and its scorn. And such, we are told, upon death, reign with Christ in heaven. What a word of encouragement this would have been for these first century Christians as as they looked around them and and the apostles who came before them and had died and and Christians were suffering and, and to know that these were now reigning with Jesus Christ. They're with Christ now in glory. And and where they are, I also shall soon be. And so I'm willing to suffer much for for Jesus Christ. You see, uh, sometimes to be a Christian, it means that you will be, in order to be faithful to Christ, that you'll have to lose your job or your business. Sometimes it means that a friend uh, will not no longer want to spend time with you. It may mean, and how painful this is, that a child of yours distances himself or herself from you because of your faithfulness to Christ. It takes effort and a daily dying to yourself to seek to raise your little children in the ways of the Lord. And to be faithful in teaching them the truth of Christianity and of disciplining them with faithfulness. To give to the Lord and to His kingdom of our material resources involves self-sacrifice. 
And there are a million ways in which you and I are called to die to ourselves, to die daily to our old sinful nature, to die daily to those things which would exalt ourselves. We are to die to them for the sake of Jesus Christ. And the message here is, it is all, all worth it. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure suffering for Jesus Christ, we're going to reign with Him. Mark 8.35, Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Or Mark 10 and verse 30, again, words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to have these emblazoned on our own Uh, in our own consciences, when he said this, Truly I say to you that there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Friends, there are benefits to being a Christian, extraordinary benefits to being a Christian in this life. So they receive a hundredfold in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, but this also, and in the age to come, eternal life. Dear friends, set your eyes upon that. That even now, while Christians suffer for His sake, and as you are called to give up things for Jesus Christ, might you remember it is but the precursor of glory when you will reign with him. Might we be encouraged by this. Might we make our assessments of this present world with heaven in view. Even there, Jesus is now ruling and reigning with his saints. Might we be encouraged by this. Let's pray uh, together. Lord, thank you for these encouraging words out of the book of Revelation. Thank you, Lord, that though you do call us often to suffer for the name of Jesus, we pray that we might remember that suffering is but the prelude to glory. O God in heaven, might you cause us even now to be faithful, faithful in our daily lives, by the help of your Spirit, faithful even unto death. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. We're going to sing now in response. Uh, It's a a hymn that is speaking of these same realities that uh, that I've just preached on. It's hymn 469. Who are these like stars appearing? These before God's throne who stand. Each a golden crown is wearing. Who are all this glorious band? And then it's going to go on and say, it is these who have contended for their Savior's honor 